thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 47. You've read the book, maybe even seen the movie. But this week on the show, you're going to learn all about the aircraft this famous author immortalized and just how he was able to so accurately describe what it was like to fly and fight it. But anyway, I was really lucky. I, I had 1,600 hours in A6s and loved every one of them. And uh, even, the, even the times when I was uh, pretty scared. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapons systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here are your hosts, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. My name is Vincent Aiello, and today we are in Scottsdale, Arizona, where we continue our aircraft series with a discussion on the Grumman A6 Intruder with a distinguished visitor. Born in a coal mining town on the western slopes of the Appalachian Mountains, this gentleman majored in political science at West Virginia University. Upon graduation, he was commissioned an ensign in the United States Navy and reported to flight training in Pensacola, Florida, where he received his wings of gold in 1969. After replacement training in the A-6, he twice deployed aboard the USS Enterprise during the final years of the Vietnam War. He later served as an A-6 flight instructor before leaving active duty in 1977. He earned a law degree in 1979 and worked in Colorado as a staff attorney specializing in oil and gas law for a large independent oil company. His first novel, Flight of the Intruder, was published in September 1986 and spent 28 weeks on New York Times bestseller lists. A motion picture of the same title was released five years later nationwide in January 1991. The novel's success allowed him to devote himself to writing full-time, which he has been at ever since, publishing nearly 50 military aviation-themed books translated in numerous languages. He was honored as the U.S. Naval Institute Author of the Year Award for 1986. He was a trustee of West Virginia Wesleyan College from 1990 to 1998. He was inducted into the West Virginia University Academy of Distinguished Alumni in 1992. And in 2014, West Virginia University awarded him an honorary Doctor of Letters degree. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce Mr. Stephen Kuntz. Sir, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Vince. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Well, it is a pleasure to be here in your lovely home. Thank you for having me in. And during the small talk before we recorded, I learned that, in fact, you finished some military service in the reserves, 21 years, and retired as a commander. Is that correct? Correct. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again for having me here, and I really look forward to talking about the A6 Intruder with you, made popular by your book and follow-on movie. But before we do that, could we talk a little bit about the book? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Well, I recently reread it for the 
third, maybe fourth time. And I really am kicking myself for not bringing it. I would love to have had you sign it for me. But at any rate, I'm curious what events, if any, in your experience towards the end of the Vietnam War inspired you to write the book? Well, I did two cruises on Enterprise um, in the last two combat cruises of that war. I thought at the time, boy, this would be a great adventure and it would be a great novel if someone would just actually write it. Well, my problem is I didn't know how to write it, but after the war was over, I became a flight instructor on A6s, so I sat down with a portable typewriter and tried to write about what it was like to fly the airplane. And I did that for about 10 years total and uh, never did anything because I really didn't have a plot. And it wasn't until I got a divorce in, uh, in 1984 that I finally thought up a plot about the pilots that tried too hard and decided that would be a good vehicle to hang my flying stories on. I had 13 flying stories that I thought I could use, and that's sort of the framework for that. It was a little simple plot about a pilot to try too hard, and he got a little more aggressive than the law allowed. So I uh, got serious about writing it nights and weekends, and amazingly enough, after seven months, I had a uh, manuscript, actually a typescript, but everybody calls it a manuscript. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine who worked at the lawyer at the oil company who'd never been in the military, he read it, and he says, well, you've got some plot points here you might want to address. So I spent another two months rewriting the thing. Oh, gosh. Then I finally I sent it out to uh, all the publishers in America who I thought might be interested in this type of book. I had 32 rejections in hand when I saw The Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy in a bookstore. And I saw it was a submarine book, and it was published by the United States Naval Institute. And so I asked myself, why didn't I put the United States Naval Institute on my list of possible publishers? When I got back to the office, I looked them up, and their uh, entry in Writer's Digest said they only did serious naval fiction. And I thought, well, I'm not Joseph Conrad, so I (laughs) very carefully scratched them off. But after I saw that they had published a submarine book, I thought, maybe they'll do my little flying story. So I sent them the whole manuscript with a three-paragraph cover letter. And about a month later, I got a phone call. And I recognized the name. It was the acquisitions editor that I'd sent the manuscript to. Okay. And he said, we'd like to publish your book. Well, I was thunderstruck. I was writing in nights and weekends at the oil company, and too many people knew about my little project, and I thought somebody was pulling my leg. But anyway, I sat there with the phone in my hand just sort of frozen, and I thought, well, what did you like about the story? He says, well, the flying. <laughs> you know, so anyway, what I wanted out of the, the whole writing thing was two free paperback books with my name on them. And I would have given the book to any publisher, give me two free paperbacks. <laughs> and, you know, those little military series paperbacks. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they sent me a contract. And as I mentioned when we were just chatting before the show started, we uh, it was three pages, single space, legal size. When it arrived, I ripped open the envelope, flipped to the back page, found the X, signed my name ran it through the copy machine, kept the copy, put the original envelope and a stamp on it, and sent it back to the Naval Institute. And then I sat down at my desk to read what I had signed, and I'm a lawyer. And so what I found was that those fools were going to give me $5,000 and six 
free books. Oh, wow. And I thought I'd cut a fat hog. Boy, <laughs> I thought this is just great. Isn't that a little reckless signing before you read, especially for a trained attorney, sir? Yeah, it is. <laughs> but, you know, the truth of the matter is, after 32 rejections, all right. you have no stroke at all. You're either going to take what they offer or they're going to say, we'll get somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, you know, the first novel, what the heck. So I was anxious to get somebody to publish it, and the terms really didn't matter all that much. So I think Tom Clancy did the same thing. We both found out to our horror that the Naval Institute had uh, actually copyrighted both the books in their name oh, nice. and not ours. Hmm. But anyway, uh, you know, I spent the next 10 months working with an editor. They wanted, they thought it ought to be something approaching real English. So the book... You know, we okay. got got a heavy at it, and I was involved in every step of the, that process. And then it got uh, turned into a, an advanced reader's copy and an ARC, and they put a production jacket around it. And they called me up and said, uh, who do you know that's famous? I said, nobody. <laughs> I'm from West Virginia. <laughs> and so they said, well, we got to have some people to plug this thing. Okay. They wanted to plug it. You know, right. this is the greatest book since Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John quit writing. And so something along those lines. But anyway, I thought about it a little bit. I think, well, why don't you send a copy of the ARCs to John Lehman? And uh, Lehman was the Secretary of the Navy at the time. He was a Naval Reservist. He was an A6BN. And he flew A6s out of NAS Oceana okay. on the weekends. And I said, you know, if the A6 guys don't like this book, we're doomed. Nobody will. And so they did. They sent that to the Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, and um, he loved it. And so he sent it over to the White House, to uh, President Reagan. And as it happens, this is where the story gets really good, and you find out what a ace I am. But uh, basically, the Fortune magazine had a reporter photographer team come in and take pictures of the um, president in the Oval Office for an article that they were doing about Reagan the manager. And it came out in the September 1986 edition of Fortune that had the president on the cover. He opened the article and there was a full-page picture of President Reagan sitting at his desk. And there's only two things on the desk, a jar of jelly beans and a copy of Flight of the Intruder by oh, Stephen wow. Coombs. Well, you can't get any better promotion than that. <laughs> no. You know, and, uh, well, the Naval Institute, when that came out, they saw it. They mobilized their staff, all 14 of them, and they went around Annapolis and they bought up every copy of Fortune they could find, and they sent those to the reviewers that they sent advanced reading copies to okay. with an error pointing <laughs> to the book on the desk. They see it's on the president's desk. Right. And so a book by an unknown author about an unpopular war got reviewed nationwide, and the reviews always started. This book was on the president's desk. And so the book had that oomph that a usual first novel doesn't get. Right. It went on to the bestseller list and stayed there for 28 weeks. And I was the most amazed man in America, Vince. I, you know, I had no idea that the book would even succeed in any way at all. And to be a bestseller and then to turn into a big bestseller, I was just blown away. And then a movie to boot. But, you know, what I love about the book 
is the flying scenes are gripping and not just the combat scenes, but the ones where Jake, the hero has the flight dock in his seat and most fun he can have with your pants on. I think it's some one of the quotes and they're flying into Kubi point. And then the shenanigans on Liberty. I mean, I was sitting on a airplane catching a ride to go to work or something and just laughing out loud. And people thought I was diabolical or something, but I just, I, I love the story and I think it's safe to say most people do too. And so for a gentleman who was self-taught at this, I mean, you knocked it out of the park, and you've had a lot of successes since. Well, I, I sure learned a lot well, from my editor, because most editors, as I found out later, they just edit the thing, and then they send you back for you to approve or disapprove of every change. This lady talked about it. She had a master's degree in rhetoric, and she knew what the English language is all about. Okay. And we talked about it, and then if we talk about what we wanted to convey, and what was the best way to say it? And so this back and forth really taught me the craft of writing. And my hat's off to her. She was an excellent employee of the Naval Institute. But they're sort of a unique publisher because most of the books they do are the author is a first-time author. Whether it's a biography of an admiral or a war or out-of-time knots, most people that uh, they publish are that's their first venture into writing. So they edit and they edit hard, but that helped. But the next book, the editor only had three pages of points that he thought oh, I'll look at, and I did that. The way it goes, the line editor, and that was the end of it. Steep learning curve. You learn. Yes. And the more you do, hopefully, the better you get at it. Or until finally, of course, you go over the hump, you start getting worse and worse and worse, and <laughs> it's time to quit. Well, and we'll talk about at the end of this episode what you have coming down the pipe, but it sounds like you've been quite prolific at it. And Yeah, well, you know, Vince, uh, as it happened in the mid-'80s, uh, for those who remember, the oil business was going to heck in a handbasket, and the price of oil went from $33 a barrel to $11 a barrel in two months. Wow. And so... That put my company, meant they lost money with every barrel of oil they brought out of the ground. And so eventually they sold all the assets of the company and fired all the employees, oh, including me. 2,200 people lost their jobs. And so I remember the book came out and was doing well on the bestseller list. And I went and see my boss and said, you know, Kenny, I think I'm going to quit. You know, I'm going to try writing you know, full time. He says, well, who will do the work around here? I said, that's your problem. That's not mine. <laughs> and he says, well, I'll tell you what. If you'll stay when the next round of layoffs comes around, I'll fire you and give you severance pay. I thought, well, that's a pretty good deal. And so I did. It was in six weeks, and they told Kenny to lay off another lawyer. And so he called me in and said, I'm going to have to let you go. And I almost leaped across the desk and shook his hand. <laughs> and he gave me severance pay. And But then I was, you know, working hard on another novel. And, mm. and uh, then it became sort of a, I have to do it. Mm. Because you get paid a royalty check and you pour the money into the top of the boot and there's a hole in the bottom. And, you know, you got to live off it. That's and right. so you got to keep pouring money in at the top. <laughs> and so uh, that was, uh, it was a huge transition, but... I was lucky. I had three publishers who wanted to do my next book, and I signed a Doubleday okay. and did uh, Final Flight with them, and that was a huge bestseller. That came out in 88. That was actually the, the biggest bestseller I ever had. Really? 
and uh, it was the 12th biggest bestseller of 1988. Wow. From then on, I had the good fortune to be in a position that publishers were willing to sign me up based on one paragraph description of what the book was going to be about. Hmm. It's, we want to do your next book. When do you think you could have it done? Well, by then you were a proven entity. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that's the whole thing in a nutshell. You, They have to know you can deliver a right. commercial manuscript. Right. And at that point, you know, I was a professional novelist. They knew I could do it. So I've been doing that for all these years and uh, Good. and having a lot of fun at it. And it's had its ups and downs. Oh, like anything. Well, I'd like to talk about the A6 here in a moment. Sure. But before we do, let's talk briefly, if you would, about the transition of your book from the novel to the movie. Was there much drama in that as far as the... Because, of course, a good book doesn't make a good movie a lot of times. Yeah, but any just very, short anecdote you can tell us about uh, that process? Well, I, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Okay. Uh, the Naval Institute, as I said earlier, had the copyrights All right. for The Hunt for Red October and Flight of the Intruder. And they sold them both to a producer named Mace Newfeld, who was associated with Paramount Studios. And Mace decided to do uh, The Hunt first and did with Sean Connery. Right. And then he decided to do uh, Flight of the Intruder. And uh, he had his troubles with the script. He couldn't get a script that he really liked. And since he had to have the Navy's cooperation to make the movie, the Navy had to approve the script. And they weren't going to approve anything that cast the Navy in a bad light. Sure. And so I remember... One of the scripts that I looked at had Jake Craft and Smoking Pot. And I uh, I was outraged. Okay. I uh, agreed with the Naval Institute that they would not do anything to lower the value of the property. In other words, the book is a, a property and the characters is property. And so I wrote them, so I'll sue you if you do that. Well, better sense prevailed, and they decided to drop that. That's but, good. But uh, they took the scripts, and they kept going up to see uh, Rear Admiral uh, Fred Metz at uh, Whidbey Island, because he had the A6s on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And he looked at him and says, I know Steve Coons. And he said, I'm the guy you have to please, or the Navy will not cooperate for making this movie. And so they finally got a script that Admiral Metz thought would work. And so he, on behalf of the Navy... You know, sign them up and let them take pictures of A6s and allow them to get out on the ship and get some photographs. And But then I, I got to watch one day of filming. And so I went down to uh, Paramount Studios in, uh, I guess, Hollywood and, you know, watched them film all morning. They were working with a simulated cockpit, and it was uh, Willem Dafoe and Brad Johnson in the cockpit. And I decided right then, as I watched, I didn't want to be an actor. These guys, each scene might be 15 or 20 seconds. And the cameras roll, and the director's watching. And then they say, cut. And they said, now do it again. Now I want you to do this and that. You know, And there's nothing spontaneous about this. You might do 30 takes to get 15 seconds worth of film. Wow. There's no happy accidents. It's all very carefully planned. Hmm. So they got that scene, the guys take a pit for a stop, get back in the cockpit, and they start on the next scene. Oh, gosh. And, and I got to go to lunch to Paramount Cafeteria and, and had a mediocre tuna salad sandwich, and, <laughs> and I met Mace Newfeld, and, of course, you know, the director, John Melius, was a real character. And uh, then I went home. 
went back to writing books. Okay, let them deal with that, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, that, that turned out to be, I thought, a pretty good movie, and certainly... Well, I thought it was fair. Yeah. It wasn't quite, I wouldn't say, as much of a blockbuster as, say, Top Gun. Yeah, well, you know, the problem with taking a novel and turning it into a movie is a novel, that novel took about 12 hours to read as an audio book. Mm-hmm. It had 13 flying scenes in it. The movie is 92 minutes, okay? It has three flying scenes in it. And so it's, in effect, a Reader's Digest condensed book. Now, if you like Reader's Digest condensed books, you like movies that get made from novels. Right. And if you don't, you know, you better be reading the book. Right. Now, those movies do best, I think, which are written for the movies, you know, In effect, it's a play written for the movie, and they don't leave anything out. This is exactly the way the creator wanted it to look. Instead of being adapted from a novel. Yeah. Yeah. And so we could probably count on the fingers of one hand all the great books that were made into great movies. Right. We start with Gone with the Wind, and then we sit there and, and, you know, scratch our chins and try to figure out what the other four are. But there are not a lot of them. No, there are certain bits of a book that just don't translate well into movies. I'm no expert, but just anecdotally from reading, for example, your book and then watching the movie, there's some disconnect there. But, you know, that's the way it's got to be. Well, the star there of the story is Jake Grafton. He goes on in your other novels, but he flies the other star, and that is the A6. And with your permission, that's what we'd like to talk about today. And we always, in our series here on this podcast, start with what was it designed to do? Now, the A6 was designed, as I understand, as sort of a medium bomber from the carrier and also all weather and even low altitude. So that was a big part of the book and probably your experiences as well, correct? Well, the whole A6 started because the Marine Corps wanted a close air support aircraft. After Korea, they wanted a jet airplane that could drop bombs in close to troops. Well, the Navy wanted an all-weather attack airplane. And so Putting the two together, Grumman came up with this design, which was cutting edge when it was designed in the middle 1950s. It had two radars, a search and a track, and it had a computer. Now, this was long before software had even been invented, and the memory was on a rotary drum, sort of like a think of a thimble, and it revolved every 0.52 seconds, in other words, roughly twice a second, mm-hmm. and ran through the whole program each Oof. time. And if the thing quit revolving for any reason, the computer sat between the BN's legs, he would kick it and try to get the drum going again. There was no software, none of that. Mm-hmm. And so it worked or it didn't, and it didn't work well. And all this stuff was state-of-the-art sure. when it was designed, and by the time it got to the fleet in the mid-1960s, it still had a lot of bugs in it. And so the radar had about a four-hour mean time between failure, and the, the computer was someone less, about three. And the, the, when it worked, when, the, when the, main, the avionics shops could keep this stuff working, mm-hmm. it was an all-weather attack bomber, you know, state-of-the-art. Right. When they couldn't, it was a, a wonderful... Uh, dive bomber that you know carried a, about twice the load of an A4 mm-hmm. and uh, can carry up to uh, 15,000 pounds ordnance, and so this is tremendous load for sure. But uh, 
The crew sat side by side. The pilot sat on the left side. Actually, the seat was about two inches higher and two inches further forward than the BN. And the BN had the search radar screen in front of him, which was a round screen. And then it had a flexible hood that came out, collapsible for safety purposes, that shielded the screen from extraneous light okay. during the day. Right. Just as a practical matter, he even used it at night. And so they never took the, the hood. They call it a radar hood out. Okay. Now, the way the system worked was that the computer would help. He would type in a waypoint or a target that long to the computer. The computer knew where the plane was because it had an inertial nav system, one of the very first ones. And that was a line on the ship. So the plane had to sit on the ship, and it took about five or six minutes, as I recall, for the ship's inertial to feed the data to the airplane's inertial and to get the airplane to match the ship's data. And so now this, the airplane knows that it's moving in the sea and where it is, and it has a velocity, mm-hmm. and the velocity is the ship's velocity. Right. Okay. So as the airplane flies along, it has a Doppler radar to help it figure out drift and to help keep the velocities going. And then this information is fed to the computer, and so the BN types in his waypoint, and the computer puts a crosshair on the radar right where he thinks that spot is. Well, the BN, this is where the art comes in, has to look at the sea return and say, that one is the one. <laughs> And he does that because he's experienced and he's made hundreds of hours of radar predictions during his training of looking at uh, sectional charts and photographs and any imagery you have and predicting what that's going to look like at a certain angle and altitude as the airplane comes in. Then he has to, as the airplane comes in at night as fast as they can go because they're shooting at you, he has that just an instant to recognize, yes, that's it, and get the cursor there. And he's got to keep it there, and by keeping the cursor on the target, he can update the velocities, which the computer is going to use to calculate a point in space to drop a dumb weapon ballistically to hit that target. Okay. And then he has cues that show up for the pilot that he can fly off. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. All this, the computer's feeding all this Information to the pilot on in symbols on a on a multifunction display, mm. and the pilot is is following the steering symbols, and if he thinks we're on the target, he commits the computer to an attack by pulling the commit trigger, and that arms the weapons. And now, when the computer sends a signal to the weapons racks, the bombs bombs come, come off. off. No kidding. And this can be done at low altitude and at night. And, night, and this was before night vision goggles, right? Oh, yeah. Wow. This is, okay. Luckily, the coastal plain in North Vietnam was flat, or relatively so. And <laughs> we go in anywhere from under 500 feet. And many a time, uh, big guys would be down at 200 feet, you know. At night. Golly. 480 knots with a load of bombs and uh, BNs trying to find the target. And, of course, they're shooting like crazy. Sure. And so... That was the mission, and wow. uh, it was it was a great thrill. And uh, you talk about adrenaline overload. And so, and then during the day, you might fly Alpha Strikes, which is using the airplane as a big a big dive bomber, higher altitude. And, yeah, with mm-hmm. all the okay, all the air wing airplanes, F fours, A sevens, whatever. Sure, it might be sent 
just uh, down to Laos to uh, where a mud trail crossed the river. Make the mud hole bigger. Yeah, well, and your book goes into some detail about the frustration the pilots had with that. Now, you've said the term BN a couple of times. I just want to clarify in case our listeners not aware. That is a bombardier navigator. Indeed. And the title is chosen specifically because those are two of the primary tasks. Yeah. And this is a naval flight officer, not another correct. pilot. That's okay. correct. And I believe the seats were adjusted to the positions you talked about because the flight controls on the left side for the pilot were only on that side. And so he needed to be able to see past the BN That's in right-hand turns or formation flying. He, he sees across the scope hood, and that's down a little bit. But, yeah, the pilot needs to be able to see to the right mm-hmm. on rendezvous you sure. know, when you're coming in. And then the BN, his whole panel is full of computer readouts. And I didn't even talk about the track radars. As the BN approaches the target, he tries to get a, a lock on with a track radar, if he could get the track to lock on that target, the gimbal angles would be fed to the computer, Mm. and the computer would now update the airplane's position in space based on the angles and and read the distance. And so that was the system in the early, in the 1960s. We used that throughout the Vietnam War. Right. But the A6E came along in 1971, but the Navy would not allow the A6E to fly in Vietnam. It was a strategic decision. <laughs> if we lose any, we don't want the, the uh, Russians to see them. Gotcha. The A6E had gone from this goofy old computer to a solid-state digital computer. The two radars were now combined in one phased array oh. radar that will search and track. Wow. And the radar had a thousand hours mean time between <laughs> failure. And I don't know that the computer ever failed. Wow. And when you're talking about airplanes that get catch shots and slam down on aircraft carriers, decks and landings and all that, at that time, that level of reliability was just beyond phenomenal. It was astounding. And so... Uh, then the A6E got updated with a tram package, which was a laser package that mm-hmm. sat in a turret under the nose. And so the BN now had a laser and he had low light infrared, all of which he aimed with that crosshair. And so he could pick out a target in infrared. He would see the target now on the screen. And he's got the laser right on it. And now you can drop laser guided bombs. And so uh, from that point on, the A6 never missed. Right. You know, you're going to put them in there, and you're going to drop it in a pickle barrel. I've seen photographs when they were testing these systems. The guys dropped on a bus, and they wanted the fourth window back. <laughs> and so at 500 knots, he hit the fourth window back. No kidding. Wow. You know, it's 2019, and we take this technology for granted today. Yes. The young people that are flying the aircraft don't know any other system. They are raised with devices in their hands, but in the mid-60s, 50 years ago, this was cutting-edge stuff, and oh, that it was, sounds like it changed quickly, too. Yeah. So but the A6 was constantly updated, and it retired in 1997 after 37 years of service. And so uh, the uh, there was a lot of talk about replacing the wing. Basically, the wing spars wore out. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to replace the wing spars, but they, that got to the point that it was going to be so expensive because you had to tear the airplane in half. Right. 
they decided they'd come up with a new airplane, the A-12, which was going to be a stealth design. But the A-12 went grossly over budget, and uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Dick Cheney right. killed it. Right. And so all that left the Navy, once the A-6 retired, without an all-weather bomber. And they immediately went to the F-18 and decided, and the F-14, and said, we've got to make right. this an all-weather bomber. That's right. Yeah. So our next question is usually, what does it do well? It sounds like, particularly with those upgrades you mentioned with the laser and the IR, that it, it did its mission very well. Very, very well. It was designed to be medium bomber, and it was able to do so, and it got better over the years, including all the way up through Desert Storm right before it retired. Well, you know, it, it actually, uh, they, they adapted it to fire the Harpoon anti-ship missile, mm-hmm. and it could launch a Harpoon from over 100 miles away. Wow. And then... Uh, you know, it just the, not had its problems, one of which was the amount of the weight that you could bring back aboard ship. Okay. And that was, you know, it, it had a, basically it was the 33,000 pounds and the airplane weighed 27. You could bring back six grand. Of something, Some of these right? missiles and stuff are very expensive and they're very heavy. Right. Well... You can't just go dropping million-dollar missiles in the ocean because you can't get them back aboard ship, and you can't go shooting them off like firecrackers. Sure. So that means the crew has got to run the gas in the airplane way, way down, <laughs> and that gets very exciting, especially oh, sure. at night or in bad weather. And uh, so that was one of the major problems. Mm. And the other was that maintainability had not been designed in. That right. was a... That was not a concept in the 1950s and 1960s that anybody understood. And, of course, today, you simply open a bay and all this stuff is just in racks. Plug and play. Guys, yeah, the guy just pulls it out and shoves it under and in. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even have to screw it in. He just <laughs> shoves it it's in. It's got the quick releases. Yeah, and it's in place. Yep. Well, yeah, that is one of the advantages. But on the other hand, we have learned over the years that that's what we need because when the... You didn't have it. You didn't have it. out how hard it was exactly. to maintain the airplane. We, we did have an episode on this show before about the F-14, also a Grumman product. And unfortunately, that led to its demise at one point. I mean, it would have ultimately retired, but it got to the point where it would just became so expensive because as it ages, just like us, we more and more things start to fail. And so same thing for the A6, but it did have quite an illustrious career and did quite well in Desert Storm. Although, as I recall, I think there was some consternation about sticking with the old fashioned, if you will, game plan of let's go in at night low. And I don't think that worked quite as well in Desert Storm. Uh, a lot of those pilots had some, some challenges with that. <laughs> But it did its job, what it was designed to do, very well. Stephen, what can you tell us about the way it looks, or why does it look the way it looks, the A6? Well, it was designed to have this big, I guess you'd call it a firewall, in front of the cockpit to mount a, a search radar and a track on mm-hmm. And those, the search was big. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten the exact dimensions, but it was a pretty nice-sized dish. And so they had this big, dumb nose radar could penetrate <laughs> over those two radars. Uh-huh. And that drove the design. And so since you had this wide cockpit, why not put the crew side by side? Sure. And then you could put a big fuel tank behind them. And, of course, the wings were fuel tanks. And so that just drove the design and made it look like a flying drumstick with a fat end going first. <laughs> and so 
And at first blush, everybody said, that's the ugliest plane I've seen in years. Oh. But after you fly it for a while, you think, boy, that's a really nice That's airplane. right. Well, no mother ever thought her baby was ugly. So once you became, you know, once you fly it, you, you grow some love for it. And then, and, well, and well, you, get... you know, as a pilot, it had that big wing that was designed to carry all those weapons, mm -hmm. subsonic. Right. And so this airplane had a lot of lift, so it was relatively easy to get aboard ship. And so pilots love that. And that big wing with a lot of flaps and mm -hmm. slats it brought the typical 6,000-pound bring back. You're coming in at 33,000 pounds. That only gave you 118 knots in. Wow. This is, the, the F4 was like 142. Oh, gosh, yes. And so you're coming in slower. you got better control of the ball. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought it was... Compared to what other airplanes had to put up with to get aboard ship, it was a relatively easy right. airplane to get aboard. Well, what are we talking? We're talking about staying alive, you know? Right. So this right. airplane was a fun airplane to fly, very maneuverable. And you did it the old-fashioned way, just looking out the window, no heads-up display like my generation became cripples. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't couple up to the, uh, <laughs> to the needles. Sure. And we had needles in our second cruise, but all they were was an indication. It looked like ILS, mm. but the autopilot could not couple the airplane to the needles. And fly itself and down. Fly the needles right. and keep them centered. Right. And it worked about half the time. Okay. And, uh, you know, the ship say, call, you, call the needles up and right. and said, no, they're lower and left. They disregard the needles. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. All right, so it looks like a flying drumstick, also because of the size of the nose, like you said a moment ago, subsonic. Mm -hmm. And then also the fuel probe, in-flight refueling probe, was fixed because I'm guessing they kind of ran out of space to put the thing. But Well, yeah, and so, you know, you had this little, uh, like the Gamble's quail that runs around That's right. here. <laughs> you know, there it was. Right. But you never worried about it not coming out. That was an issue on the F-18. That's so. exactly okay. right. And the F-4, too. Right. Okay, so we started talking about the variants. Let's continue that discussion if we could. The A6A was the initial variant, and I assume, is that the one you flew? Yes. Okay. But I then, also flew the E. 
the E as well later. Okay. But, yeah. but so the A had some of the earlier technology you spoke of and it was a side by side, all that is pretty standard. But then the B came along and now the EA six B prowler is not necessarily a variant we're going to talk about today. Oh, although no, they look totally very different. Right. But they look the same, but was the A six B a predecessor to that? Didn't it have sort oh, yeah. of that? A six B was uh, designed to uh, fight enemy radars. Suppression so of enemy air defenses. The, the uh, radar threat from surface terror missiles and from radar-guided uh, anti-aircraft fire was such as in Vietnam that the services realized they're going to have to do something electronically to try to mm-hmm. meet that threat. The Air Force converted some airplanes um, in the back seat and gave the guy, you could hear the things, and then they jammed it and used other things to uh, range gate pull off and other stuff sure. to try to deception defeat, and all that. Deception mm-hmm. and try to defeat that. The Navy converted A6s into A6Bs. They took out the bombing system and turned it all on the right seat into that wild weasel mm-hmm. uh, technology. And the airplane was set up to shoot uh, Shrike and Standard Arm. And so uh, Shrike was uh, a missile that was relatively cheap and it had no memory. It had a nominal 15 mile range. Aviators like to shoot within 10. You got a guy looking at you and you got the threat radar, be it a gun radar or a fan song missile control. And, you know, and he could fire that missile at that radar. And if the radar kept radiating Mm -hmm. all the way, the missile would hit it and explode and the shrapnel would take out the radar, the van, and anybody in the van, and maybe if you're lucky, a couple of the missiles. Sure. But if you're within 10 miles, you're within their envelope. Oh, oh man. This took some nerve, I guess. This is too close. (laughs) But uh, the Shrike, or I mean the standard arm, was a standard anti-radiation missile, was a much larger missile. It was uh, worth about $100,000 a piece at that time. Okay. And it had a range of 50 miles. Oh. And it had a limited computer memory that allowed it to memorize the location of the radar. Ah. And so when the, you locked on the, the missile to the frequency and the radar that you were targeting, and you fired it, and if the radar kept emitting two or three places along the missile's flight, it would just go to that position. So even if they shut down, it was going to hit that radar. Wow. Boom. Nice. And, uh, well, the North Vietnamese learned to defeat the Shrike. By as soon as they detected a Shrike launch, they just turned off the radar. Mm-hmm. The Shrike then went stupid. Well, the benefit of that is if you've got guys going to hit a target that's defended by those missiles, you launch a Shrike, and they all shut down. So either way, you've accomplished your mission. Yeah, and especially if they have SAMs in the air. Right. They can't guide them if they shut down their radar, and the SAMs all go stupid. Those days. Nowadays, it's a different story, but... Now, now see, the SAMs now memorize your position. Uh, and have their own seekers, and yeah, et cetera. So, okay. It's a cat and mouse game, absolutely, yes. We talk about that on this show. So that mission, though, wasn't a separate squadron. You would have a couple of those aircraft in your, in squadron, your squadron. And you chronicle this quite well in your book, Flight of the Intruder, because, in fact, Jake and... I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the uh, fellow. Is it Tiger he flies with afterwards? Tiger uh, Cole, that's right. That they go out and do this mission, and, and it's described. Well, the pilot didn't need much training because, you know, plane's going to fly exactly the same. Right. But the BN, they didn't know what he was doing. Sure. And 
had to have a lot of training to, to shoot the missiles and operate all the electronic warfare okay. here. And so, uh, and it was the same guys. They were BNs during the night, and then, you know, the, the next mission they were going to fly the B. Okay. And then another variant, of course, was the, uh, was the KA-6D tanker. And okay. every squadron had four or as many as six of those. So that made the squadron pretty big. It might have 10 or 12 bombers, one or two uh, A-6Bs, uh-huh. and four or five or six. Oh, uh, gosh. So you're talking 18 aircraft. Yeah. Wow. These squadrons are big. So you'd have about 18, 19 crews assigned. Crews meaning Crew 19 mean times 2, BN right? 38 sure. folks. Yeah. Okay. And so All right. the uh, A6C, mm-hmm. the only squadron that I know that had A6Cs was VA-145. An A6 was converted to dropping laser-guided bombs. Okay. Because the A6A only dropped dumb bombs. And so the, to do that, they had to put a laser pod, and basically it's a paved knife pod on it. Okay. And then allow the BN to control the rate of the pod and all that. And that's what the A6C was designed to do. And as I recall, the, the Navy only had three or four of them, and they sent them all to VA-140. Okay. So a specialized type thing. Yeah, and, then, specialized. and then the A6E was that kind of was the upgrade pinnacle for the A. upgrade, right, that stuck around the longest in service, like you said, up until the late 90s for the Marine Corps. Yeah. I think the Air, Navy ended up, I think, retiring them in the... 97. 90s, oh, the Navy did as well? Yeah. Okay. Now, we talked already about some of the ordnance, but can we just rattle through some? So it carried general purpose weapons, high and low drag. All the Mark 80 series. All the Mark 80 series. Um, and then later you talked about some of the anti-ship stuff. We talked about the laser-guided weapons. How about rockets? You said it was designed to do close air support. Well, yeah, but I never saw an A6 with rockets. You okay. could put them on. A4, A7 did yeah. more of that. A4s shot uh, those 5-inch rockets mm-hmm. and... Uh, but the problem with those, you know, a lot of those things have had uh, EMI problems aboard ship. Yes. Remember the accident? Oh, yes. And uh, I think it was Riskany or Forrestal. One of those two, the rocket lit off. EMI on a carrier, electromagnetic, electromagnetic interference, yeah, thank you. is a huge problem because you've got the carriers got all those big radars oh, sure. going around. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you've got the radars, the ship's nearby and the airplanes and everything else. So you got a lot of electromagnetic energy okay. floating around. Yep. And uh, they're only just now starting to come back to the Navy, and I don't know that they'll come to the ships because with the Hornet going away, the Super Hornet's got a canted pylon, so they haven't figured that out yet. But the helicopters are firing rockets, and so they're starting to try to make a comeback, but they were not very popular for the longest time for the reasons you state. Yeah. Now, of course, the A6... Also uh, carried uh, cluster bombs, CBUs, okay. and Raqqa. Right. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, they were a uh, 500-pound canister and had carried about 250 of these little bomblets. Yep. Canister opened about a, after about 1,000 feet above the ground. The bomblets were dispersed into an oval pattern. Mm-hmm. You could increase the density by dropping the canisters two at a time, and you could train them out to get a, you know, train them off to get a nice, long, Pattern sure. and uh, those were heck on uh, anti-aircraft guns, oh, I bet. trucks, right. anything like that that Soft you're going against a targets. mobile sure. target. 
and it makes you the airplane much more accurate. Right. I always thought of it like trying to hit a bird in flight with a rifle instead of a shotgun, right? Yeah. So if you drop a bomb, you have wonderful concentration in one spot. Yeah. But if you need a wide area, then you drop a cluster munition. Yeah. Okay. Then we talked about the anti-radiation type stuff. How about the walleye? Did you carry walleye? Uh, they, did, they did have walleye okay. and used it. But uh, walleye was a nice, uh, a nice weapon. In fact, that you mm-hmm. know, dropped the... Uh, Thanwa Bridge with walleyes. Right. We had a gentleman speak on the podcast about the A7, and we talked a bit about the walleye. Okay. And then also the TALB, Tactical Air Launch Decoy. So depending on what your mission was, you might just go out and drop some decoys to confuse the enemy. And then also, how about the standoff land attack missile, the SLAM? Yeah, the SLAM. That was the A6E was converted to that, I believe, in the 80s and the 90s. Sure. And, of course, Harpoon and SLAM. Right. It carried all those big missiles and uh, was good at it, too. Okay. Um, we talked about cluster munitions, napalm, but again, that... Never used. You never used it. Okay. How you about... Ne- never, you never put napalm board ship. Now, I'm sure the Marines okay. carried it uh, from Marine Corps right. land bases, but for the napalm, same reason, not, yeah. not a board ship. Yeah, for sure. And how about, did you do any special missions? I mean, we talked about the A-7 and its nuclear role. Did, was the A-6 a nuclear bomber? Oh, yeah. That's, okay. that's really was, you know, they had uh, the PSYOP, Single Integrated Operational Plan, which was top secret at the time. But now due to the passage of time, it's unclassed. Mm-hmm. You know, every, every A-6 squadron that went uh, overseas had a nuclear mission assigned. And on the way to Vietnam, the uh, crew had to plan a nuclear strike. And I remember uh, my first cruise, I was assigned to hit a Army headquarters in Shanghai. Hmm. And so we figured out how we were going to get in there. And the problem was you had other weapons that, you know, so... The timing had to be exquisite. You didn't want to be in the, the, in the middle of another <laughs> oh, weapon. Golly, I'd say. And then, uh, you know, you dropped your nuke and tried to get out of there in one piece. And and so, you mm. know, I was the Shanghai bomber. And, you know, you, you stop to think about that. It's one thing to go against a bridge or a truck park or something like that. But, you know, a nuclear weapon is, you know, it's an area, it's, it's a mass destruction weapon. And if had we ever been told to use it, it would have caused tremendous loss of life in a place like Shanghai, which at the time I think had 15, 18, 20 million people living in there. But anyway, if they declared nuclear war on us, they had to be able That's right. to smack them back. That's right. And so launch the A6s and uh, well, night and foul weather. That's the only plane you got that could go and launch a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, it's a massive understatement, but I'm glad it never came to that. I think so, <laughs> But too. I don't know uh, how else to, to put it than that. And then the only other weapon I have on my notes here are mines. So mining harbors, mining... Well, A6s carry mines and did in mm-hmm. uh, May 1972 when President Nixon ordered the uh, mining of the Haiphong and all the estuaries along the North Vietnamese coast. And uh, A6s and A7s both carried mines. Okay. A7s carried two, and A6 carried bigger, heavier mines. Mm. The problem with a mine, of course, is the drag. The drag counts right off the roof. Oh, I bet. So, you know, you got the throttles to the uh, <laughs> pedal to the metal, sure. and you're doing 250 knots and with these mines. 
but you're also low because you know your mind doesn't fall very far. It's right. got to be placed so precisely. Mm-hmm. But the A6 was perfect for that because you'd use the computer and the radar to pick a point a, of land a, or something. Uh, yeah, right. a line, and you'd bomb offset. Water's water, man. Yeah, you know where you are. You got a bullseye so, every time, right? So you'd have to you'd have to have a shore target, and then you know you azimuth and distance, and the computer would figure all that and drop the mine right right where you wanted it. That is a mission I did in the F eighteen, and it was kind of tedious, and but it was interesting because there was some differences to it than just normal bomb dropping. So yeah, yeah. I found it mildly interesting, but yeah, it sounds like it was actually employed. So that that's very interesting. Now, as far as the performance of the aircraft goes, what was the highest you ever flew one? What was the fastest, and how many G's? <laughs> Well, the, the highest I ever flew one was 49,100 feet. Okay. And it was a brand new A6E Ooh. from the factory. It had 10 hours on the clock, and they hadn't put a bomb racks on. It only had the pair oh, of racks. I was naked as the day and, I was born. I was a squadron uh, uh, out-of-check test pilot. Okay. So I had to do the acceptance check sure. for this airplane. So I took it up on a beautiful day mm. out of Puget Sound, and we did do it. Went up there, and then the last thing you do is at forty thousand feet, you pull an engine back and let it cool down to idle, and you very carefully write down what those temps are, so the engine guys can adjust the engine. Then you run that and back up. When it's at full power, you do the other. And I thought, well, why not? You know, we got a little fuel. It's clear to the moon. Let's see how high this thing can go. I flew it right into the corner of the envelope. And got it up to, I think it was 49,100 feet. And we were not wearing pressure suits. And so it was doing 180 knots indicated at that time. And throttles, of course, two locked. But we're down to 1,600 pounds of flow on each engine. Not enough air. Mm-hmm. And the thing sits up there and it's right on the edge of a stall. You know? And it, we're talking, you know, 20 feet a minute. <laughs> Creeping up there. Yeah. And right. he's sitting there. Well, I thought, you know, really this is high enough. I'm down to 1,200 pounds, which is low fuel light, but I'm right over the field. Sure. And so I thought, this is high enough. And I sh- just tweaked the nose down just a second and went right into Mach Buffett because A6 is not supersonic. Right. It will not cut through that shockwave. And well, finally, it got low enough mm-hmm. and got out of Mach Buffett. And so... Then we're going to fly like a real airplane. But that, that was a great... Well, it clearly stuck with you. Yeah, all, all right. right. That was fun. As far as flying low, I assume you had it down low during the missions. And oh, yeah. How about um, speed, other than uh, you were well, close to supersonic, about high altitude, but... Uh, the airplane would give you about 480 true with a load of bombs. Okay. And maybe 500, 510, 520 clean. That was it. Okay. That was all you're going to get. And again, that's that big nose. Yeah, that was all you're going to get. And how many Gs? Rated for six. Okay. I once pulled nine, but anyway. (laughs) Did you need to pull nine for survival? Yeah. Oh, well, then that's justified, I would argue. I still had, I still had, uh, I think, some 500-pound bombs aboard, and so, and half a bag of gas, and so it was a gross overstress, and it was... it was a night, and I screwed up a night dive bombing run, and, oh. and all of a sudden I realized I was way too steep, and I started pulling like crazy. I got a, saw the G meter go to nine, the radar altimeter went to fifty feet, and my BN passed out. And so, 
you know, way up there, you know, and got out over the ocean again. He woke up, what the hell happened? <laughs> and, you know, I was, uh, I was pretty scared. But anyway, the G meter was sitting there way over nine Gs. And so I wrote it up. It needed to be inspected. Sure. I, mean, he, I darn near pulled the wings off. And, uh, of course, the skipper, he sees all that stuff. I'm sure that. Oh, yeah. I'm sure the maintenance officer came in and said, you hear what that idiot Koontz did? <laughs> and look at this. You know, I, I wrote it right up. And, uh, and the, the skipper was Howie Young, and Howie never even mentioned it. Huh. He wouldn't have done it if he hadn't had to. You know, and that's yeah. the end well, of Well, this was Grumman Ironworks, so the aircraft probably was flying the next day? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they inspected it. No problem. Now, that's awesome. Oh, my. All right. Well, let's see. We've talked about many of the aircraft's strengths. Were there any weaknesses that you are willing to admit about the A6? I mean, anything that was just an awful workaround? Or? Well, the, the A model, which mm-hmm. we outflew in combat. You talked about the BN having had, to kick the had, thing. Had, yeah, right. The Navy needed a well-equipped supply line to keep that stuff working, okay. and they never had it. Okay. And uh, so the battles with the avionics in the A through the Vietnam War were just legendary. The problem with bringing back ordnance meant a lot of it went into the ocean. And then to get access to repair, you had to open the airplane up. And all those were problems. But, you know, every airplane's got some problems. Right, absolutely. And uh, at that time, back in the early 70s, it was state-of-the-art. And sure. uh, we, th- we thought we were darn lucky to have a, a, such a good airplane to fly. Right. Well, that is... As good of a testimony as any, I suppose. Now, normally our next question is, where would the listener have seen this aircraft? I think we've covered that sufficiently on this interview. How about uh, any good sea stories? I mean, you've obviously regaled us with your novels in Hollywood as far as that goes, but you personally, any exciting stories, or there I was, or harrowing? Uh, we talked about your, your 9G pullout. Um, you didn't say if that was in training or not, but... No, I was in combat. Oh, gosh. Was that a result of anyone shooting at you, or...? Yeah, they were. Okay. But, uh, I don't know. I think the combat missions were the, the night low level and mm-hmm. and uh, were the most harrowing and uh, the some of the flack they put up was just awesome of course Sam's coming and mm-hmm. coming down on you yeah they take off and go above you and then come and back then down they come back right. down on you All right. and so and uh, you, you're popping chaff and you're trying to go a little lower a little lower and of course the, you know the earth's down there and if you even kiss that baby you're not coming back yeah. and uh so, but anyway, I was really lucky. I, I had 1,600 hours in these sixes and loved every one of them. Oh, and, uh, even the Even the times when I was uh, pretty scared. All right. Well, uh, did you ever on any of those missions come back and have to count holes in your wings and tail? A few times. Okay. Any any records there that you kept no. numbers of? No? You don't care? I was lucky. There weren't very many holes. Okay. Well, that's, that's a good thing. Friends and... And a lot more than I did. <laughs> well, and I'm guessing with your experiences, you might have even had friends that didn't make it back at all. So they got shot down, yeah. and they crashed. And amazingly, we had we had as many operational losses as we did combat losses. You know, it's just operating around the ship is uh, oh, yes. is a difficult environment. I don't care. They may not be shooting over the beach, but it's still there's a war out there where you're getting shot, uh, cat shots at night and 
coming back in in bad weather and operating around the ship. I can't remember the study, but I thought I once read or heard that they they hooked some sensors up to a pilot once and tried to figure out if it was more harrowing and nerve-wracking over shore, dropping bombs or laying on the carrier. Is that just well, I've a, heard about those studies. Is that a wife's tale or is that true? Uh, that's true, they did. Okay. And uh, we had this latest book we did, we had an F-4 pilot tell us that he uh, had carried a little cassette recorder and he could hear himself breathe on that. And he found when he's listening to the carrier landing, he stopped breathing for the last 30 seconds. <laughs> and he gets back to his stateroom, he's listening, and he stopped breathing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your body can only do so much at once. I guess yeah. breathing had to be load shed off. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was way down on the list. Uh, golly, that's scary. Well, Mr. Kuntz, I want to thank you for your time this afternoon and for inviting me into your beautiful home. I want to thank you for the many, many novels that you have entertained your audience with over the years. And at this point, we usually talk about what the future holds. And you you mentioned before we started rolling tape that you're still at it, right? Well, I'm still scribbling away, but uh, Barrett Tillman and I just finished a a book that will be published on May 14th. 2019? Yeah, called Dragon's Jaw. All right. And uh, Barrett, for those who don't know, is probably the premier aviation historian alive today. And he lives down here in Mesa, Arizona. Okay. And uh, so Barrett did the research, and the Dragon's Jaw was a bridge at Thanwa, the Thanwa Bridge. In North Vietnam? In North Vietnam. Okay. It's about 80 miles south of uh, Hanoi, 10 miles inland from the coast on the Ma River, and uh, it was a railroad and highway bridge combined. All right. And uh, the Air Force and Navy began attacks on that bridge in 1965, and they didn't drop it until 1972. So At great cost, by the way, to our air. At great cost. And so that was the most difficult target in North Vietnam, and uh, guys... uh, Lost over a dozen airplanes. Guys went to Hanoi over that. Guys were killed. It was the whole air war over North Vietnam and microcosm. And the basic problem was that the United States did not have the weapons to drop an overbuilt steel and concrete bridge. And uh, they dropped every other bridge in North Vietnam. But this one was so overbuilt that it wouldn't fall. And it wasn't until the advent of laser-guided weapons and walleye television-guided that they actually destroyed the bridge in 1972. And so this is the story, the Dragon's Jaw, is the story of the campaign. The actual story? Yeah. Okay, it's not Seven seven years of thrills and chills trying to get the bridge and uh, with pictures, 16 pages of pictures. And so Barrett and I... Had a lot of fun writing it, and uh, it'll be out on May 14th. And, okay. Uh, meanwhile, the folks at DiCapo, the publisher, did their thing. I wrote a, another novel that was under contract for Regnery for one more novel, and I wrote that, and it'll be out in August. It's, okay. It's uh, called uh, The Russian Account, and uh, both these books can be pre-ordered, of course, from Books of me in Barnes and Noble, sure. Amazon, wherever. Well, we'll provide some links on our website, but we are a tiny, you know, drop in the bucket compared to your audience. I'm sure is chomping at the bit to get just about anything you spend your time uh, to write. So, oh, we can, we can get my wife's phone. That's no, okay. The, the audience is very forgiving. We have audio challenges on this show quite frequently, and it's usually my doing something idiotic. 
Well, great. So you're going to continue writing after these two books as well? Well, uh, I'm not going to sign any more contracts right. to pre-deliver a book. You know, this having a deadline and having to talk to the editor ahead of time and get it all lined out, what, what the book's going to be about. I've been doing that for 34 years now, and I've reached a point that I just say, I'm going to write what I want to write. <laughs> My career has been basically thrillers, but I've written uh, three semi-sci-fi books, Saucer, the Saucer series. Mm. I've written uh, a book called The Cannibal Queen about flying uh, 1942 Stearman all over the lower 48 states. That was the uh, only other nonfiction I'd ever tried. And that book generated over half the fan mail that I received through the years. And uh, okay. people that love aviation and, or worked around airplanes or whatever, they find the Campbell Queen and they sit down and send me the story of their life in the three or four pages. And about Some of them say, you know, I always wanted to be a to fly, but life got in the way, <laughs> you know, and, and they tell me about working on airplanes oh, yes. or working in an aircraft factory or whatever. <clears throat> so I'm very proud of the Campbell Queen, and I think that it's... Uh, Good. I'll have to check it out. It, uh, it's going to be uh, one of the books they talk about at my funeral, which <laughs> hopefully will be a while yet. <laughs> Well, the statement you just made about, you know, life got in the way, that is frankly why the Fighter Pilot Podcast exists, because I am one of the few to have the privilege of the experiences that I've had, and you certainly have as well, but not everybody does. And when our circle of friends is all people have done that, we forget that. But there is a large audience of people that are very interested in this. And so on behalf of them, thank you for your novels, and thank you for coming on the show today. Before I let you go, however, we have a tradition here on the show that we always ask our guests to explain how they got their call sign, if in fact they have one. So I asked you right before we rolled tape, because I wasn't aware, but uh, I think you told me that you were for a while, maybe called Cougar? Cooter. Okay. C-O-O-T-E-R. Oh, Cooter. All right. Cooter. All right. Now, does this have well, anything to do with... you know, I'm a, a very innocent hillbilly boy. <laughs> I got to my first fleet squadron, and they listened to my West Virginia drawl a while. Okay. And they decided Cooter. You know, All right. He's the hillbilly name. So, anyway, that's what they call me. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's so funny. Nobody picks her, their nickname. No. Or, you get it, and you're stuck with it, and uh, and all those guys that knew me back when, they still call me that. Hey, Cooter, what you up to these days? You know, blah blah blah. blah. And uh, it could be a lot worse. You sure. Know, yeah. Oh yes, we've described that on the show many times. Well, to us, it's Stephen Koontz, whose name appears on many novels. Sir, thank you for your 21 years of service to this country, your nearly 50 novels of entertainment, and your time here today. We just are really thrilled. Thank you very much, Vance. Jello, wow. What an interview, huh? I mean, it's uh, stunning that that guy is, if I do the math correctly, I think this July he'll be 73. And just his amount of detail that he can recall, huh? Well, you're right about that. And just being in his home was amazing with a gentleman that I so look up to, not only for the amount of books that he's written, but yeah, to your point, the amount of knowledge that he has. And I would attribute that not only to his God-given talent, I'm sure, but the fact that he does so yeah. much research to make all these books so accurate. So yeah, just a great interview. I want to thank Mr. Stephen Koontz again for inviting me into his home. And as we sometimes comment on the show sunshine we always try to make the audio as good as we can mm -hmm. but you know what 
When Mr. Stephen Koontz invites you into his home, you don't squabble about recording <laughs> in his study. You take what you can get, and we had a nice time there in front of his fireplace. So we tried to make the audio sound as good as we could. But yeah, what a guy. I left with an armload of books, all autographed, signed to me. I've already read his book, Saucer, that he talked about. Oh, wow. And I'm working through the Flight of the Intruder sequel right now. So just a fantastic guy and a really great interview. Very nice. And I just, I really love that story that he mentioned about the advanced reader copy where he sent off to SecNav, right? The Secretary of the Navy, I think John Lehman, Lehman, excuse me. That's right. And then it ended up on Ron Reagan's desk for a photo shoot with Fortune Magazine. So <laughs> anyway, just uh, just start to finish. Just a great interview. Well, better lucky than good, but I think he's got them both in spades. So yeah, you're right about that. And to the listener who might be interested in his books, we will feature Flight of the Intruder on our shop page, as well as his upcoming book, which might be out depending on when you hear this, due out in mid-May 2019. And that's the book about the dragon's jaw that he mentioned at the end. Well, Sunshine, we realize that we owe everyone some listener questions, but here again this week, we're just not going to have a chance to get to it, but maybe you and I need to get in front of everyone on Facebook Live or find a guest and maybe have them come along and do some listener questions with us because they're building up, but we just got to find the opportunity. Yeah, Jello, great idea. I am uh, very much ready for another Facebook Live episode with some listener questions. That'd be great. Okay. Hey, also thinking about Patreon. So any news on that front? Oh, yes, indeed. We had a really big week with Patreon. We have new division leads, Craig Valentine, David Wakel, Nathan Scott, Kevin McClooney, and Russell Newman. And our new Patreon strike leads are Carl Galgufton, McKenna Savore, Matt McDonough, and Quinn LaGuardia. And then this past week, we had two new air bosses. That's the $100 level. They get all the perks, and that's Jimmy Nico and Aaron Schramm. So as always, Sunshine, I'll beat you to it. Thanks so much to our patrons who help keep this show going and in the process gain access to exclusive content. Yeah, thank you again. Appreciate that. Well, at this point in the show, we always like to remind the listener that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Well, we'll be back on the next episode for another foreign, by our standards, aircraft. By that, I mean a non-U.S. aircraft. But Sunshine, you won't be here to join us, huh? Yeah, so duty calls, Jell. Even though I'm retired, I still uh, consult with the Navy. I'll be heading out on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, be working with the air wing out there on some uh, cutting-edge weapons, helping them to learn how to employ properly. So it should be a lot of fun, and hopefully I'll bring back some good information, unclassified, of course, for our listeners. Fantastic. And look at you, still serving the United States, but now outside of the uniform. So good for you, brother. All right, well, we'll catch you back here after that then. Otherwise, what do we say? Let's get out of here. (laughs) Let's do it. See See ya. been listening to the fighter pilot podcast brought to you by bbr productions got a question for the show send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877 mach 101 that's 877-622-4101 be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com you can also find us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.
always tell young people, go to the military, you know, four or five years, six years, and go pass in a flash, go have an adventure. That's right. Meet kids from all over the United States. If you go to the Navy, you get to go places. That's right. If you join the Air Force, you can go to Idaho. And, you know, but join the Navy. Sure. Get on a ship and go someplace. Meet kids from all over. Learn a skill. Then, you know, you don't have to stay, but, you know, you, you, it'll be an experience you'll remember all your life. Oh, I agree. I think there's almost something to be said for the countries, mainly in Europe, that have compulsory service. And go they, do a couple of years of something other than yourself. Yeah. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.